0: This is the Ellis Martin report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability if not a certainty that the Ellis Martin report is compensated for that mention. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's Ellis Martin The
1: following segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by York Harbor Metals, trading as YORK on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTC as YORKF. York Harbor Metals is an exploration and development company focused on the York Harbor Copper-Zinc-Silver Project, a past-producing mine located approximately 27 kilometers from Corner Brook, Newfoundland. York Harbor has core drilled approximately 19,260 meters since July 2021 to confirm and extend the footprint print of the project. Find them at yorkharbormetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with John Fennec, the president of the Fennec Consulting Group. John has worked in financial services for 28 years as a wholesaler, portfolio manager, analyst, and consultant to financial advisors. He also works as a consultant to the commodity sector with a focus on metals and mining. John, welcome to the program. Great to visit with you today.
2: Thanks, Ellis. Pleasure to be here for the first
1: time. We initially met in Vancouver probably about a month or so ago. And at that particular point, gold was on a bit of a rise and in Klein, and we were pretty optimistic. And I was asking you about the perfect storm that could potentially devastate a good year with gold. And now, a month later, I don't know where to position myself. Does anyone? Well, we had
2: actually put out in our newsletter, the FedEx Commodity Report, that same weekend that gold had achieved a higher than 70 RSI. I think it was around 72 and a half. I followed that up in my newsletter just on Fed27, talking about bombed out stocks in the mining space, all under 30 RSI's. Basically, when you get to that 20 to 30 level in RSI's, that's your buy zone because they're oversold, right? And that goes for metals like gold as well. But gold, when you and I met, was at 72 and a half. Anything between 70 and 80 to me is a sell or a trim. And so we basically saw a 300 point move in gold from Q4 into where you and I met, you know, about four or five weeks ago. And that had to get consolidated in my opinion, right? So now I would point to that 1750 to 1850 announced channel that we saw for most of last year, right? As supports. We would love to see 1750 old here. If not, it'll probably be 17 to 1710. But realistically, gold had a reasonable week this week and i think you could see a higher low than that so the long the the message to clients i think should be look at the long-term chart on gold it's a beautiful cup and handle chart pattern and it's not broken it's completely intact
1: I was recently in Miami for Minds and Money where I was speaking about gold. I was speaking about equities and everybody asked me to make a prediction about the market and I don't do that. From what I gathered from what you just said, you knew there was going to be a bit of a consolidation when we saw each other last. You saw it coming and you probably, did you sell on that? Did you advise your clients to do mm-hmm. the same? What did you do? So I
2: gave up my license voluntarily as an advisor or you know registered rep two years ago. So I can't tell people buy, sell, hold. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is write in my newsletter and say, look, here's what I see. Right, I see gold as an oversold condition right now, and gold equities always follow the price of gold because they're stocks and they're going to have more beta. Right, so I did trim a lot in January. We're having a fantastic year right now. We're off to a great start. We've been running a portfolio for over seven years now, Ellis, and I'm very proud of that track record because I grind every single day. I was at my computer 60 plus hours this week. We're not phoning it in, if you will. There's a lot of people who make recommendations in our sector and other sectors, and say, well, here's my one-year price target. We don't look at one year or three years out. We're looking at what's the catalyst for this one, three, six months out and basically taking any profits if we think that thesis or taking a loss if we think the thesis has changed.
1: I found some companies in Miami recently at Mines & Money and also in Vancouver in the gold space, which is a bit overlooked at the moment as far as the equities are concerned as everyone's focus is sort of moving toward critical metals and critical minerals. And we can get into that if you like a little bit later. And if you don't look at the market, if you don't look at the volatility, if you don't obsess about the price of gold and the equities every day, there are a lot of good buys there. You can put some money into look away and be happy when those five to 10 bangers eventually come. We can't predict when they're going to come, but I think they will
2: well, we see things a little bit differently there in the sense that there's plenty of people in my profession that are talking three-bagger, five-bagger, ten-bagger. I've never said those words outside of just saying them right now, but I don't make predictions like that because this is the most volatile sector of the market, right? Along with biotech, I'd say, where you just don't know, whether it's the FDA or a mine plan or not coming in at budget or there's so many things to go derail a thesis here. I mean, just look at Alexco as an example. I'm not trying to single them out, but everyone one I talked to in the newsletter community have dollar, $2, $3 targets, and then they sell the heckler for 44 cents, I think it was US. Mm -hmm. It's just complete devastation of wealth. And I don't get married to anything in terms of equities because of that, right? Because we see a lot of people in this sector and others promoting things and not taking money when it's available to them. And that's, to me, a mistake, right? You have to look at taking care of the balance sheet first and foremost. And that's why management is our first screen and everything we do ellis you and i met at another event in vancouver where we were talking with some managers we both like and that relationship is key right because when things go south you can pick up the phone and call those people and get the straight story
1: so otherwise aside from that and you're absolutely correct in that and we certainly do know or at least we think we know who the people that we can deal with are and who we can't why are we in the sector if the ability as you put it to derail is there all the time
2: that's a great question and my family asks me that question frequently i would say that when the turn comes you and I and a handful of maybe 100 to 200 other people are going to have a huge leg up on the world, right? Because we have years and years of experience in this sector. To give your listeners perspective, there's one stock in the S&P that is a mining stock out of 500 names. If you look at the NASDAQ, there's only a handful. If you look at the Russell, there's a handful. And you add all that up, and it adds to less than 0.1% of anything that a Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo advisor would ever talk to you about. So, I mean, it's Really just a myopic sector that very misunderstood. And I love that because it creates opportunity.
1: That's true. And I think Rick Rule, who no one knows outside of the sector, and perhaps they don't know you or I outside of the sector as well, he said years ago that one half of one percent of the investing public was in mining, was in resources, period. So imagine if that even doubled to one percent or one and a half percent, what that would do to the price of the equities and the price of the commodities themselves. That would be completely Insane in a good way, I think. And really, is there any way to breach in the mainstream without telling everyone to buy jewelry?
2: I think there is, and you know, without naming individual names, if you just look at the largest ETF in our sector, which is obviously GDX with a ten billion plus in it, you look at the components in that, and there's a lot of names in there making good margin and putting up decent earnings. Right? They're not killing it, but some of these names are yielding four to five percent now. So remember when we came out of the 0809 malaise in 2010? Many money managers that I used to represent and work with were looking for value stocks right? Because they were scared after what happened in 08-09. We need a recession to wake this country up and other countries up, I think, and we're going to get it by Q3, Q4 of this year. And that is going to be the turn, in my view, where value managers or even core managers in the mutual fund and ETF world will look at some of the components of GDX as more attractive than they do today.
1: Now, you're not going to make any predictions about the price of gold Or am I, but you just made a prediction about a recession this year. Are you firm with that?
2: Yeah, I'm firm. I've been on Kiko March of last year and June of last year talking about a second-half recession, and so I'm sticking to my knitting on that.
1: In a nutshell, how's that coming down?
2: It looks... Shaky right now because of what's happening with the broad market, right? You know, the SP almost broke this week. It was right on the precipice and it didn't. And it had a really good day today going into a close on the weekly. Again, we don't look at that as like, oh, here we go. You know, we're going to have another huge rally. You have to deal with the Fed's actions here as an investor, which are we're approaching 5% on March 22nd, I mean, who had that on your show a year ago, right? Oh, yeah, 5% up. No, no, no one had that many were in the 4% camp. But five is pretty problematic for a lot of different reasons. Look at what's driving behavior right now. I would argue it's the US consumer and US real estate or global real estate. And that's where people have their wealth, right? What happens when you raise rates this many times that quickly? It's never happened. We don't know. So you know, as we talked about Ellis, I don't just tell people what to do. I sold all of my real estate here over the last 18 months, except for the house that I have that I live in. And I'm hunkering down now because I think we're at close to the peak of the cycle.
1: So you definitely wouldn't buy anything now with regard to real estate, would you?
2: Well, I know that opinion is different than some that say this is a real asset and there's a lot of value there. But what I would do if your listeners would do this, go to your county's assessor's website and look back at tax records going back five to seven years on the investment you're thinking about making and look at the incremental rise from seven years ago to today, why would you want to buy into that? Like, I mean, there's just a huge move in real estate in so many different markets. Are you suggesting that we're going to see that 20 to 50% growth per year just keep going based on what, given the interest rate environment we're
1: in? There were definitely some opportunities in real estate in 2010 and 2011, weren't there? The house that I live in, I bought in 2010. Geopolitically, of course, we have a war in Europe that some are saying we'll turn into World War III. NATO seems extremely involved, as is the U.S. We are somewhat outside here, you and I and others in this country. Because we're sitting here going about our business like there is something going on there, but it's not necessarily affecting us. Well, the pandemic affected us, pretty much shut down our society. Have you factored in that to your daily dealings and your investments and your psyche, actually?
2: It's a great question. And it's difficult because I took a lot of interest in what Putin was doing back in 2014, where Ukraine was concerned. And it wasn't really an easy story to follow because back then, It's Our which was the biggest Russian news service, was kind of how you had to get your news. CNN wasn't really reporting much or any U.S. channel for that matter about the day-to-day. But now with everyone having smartphones and everything, it's on everyone's mind, right? It it just had our one-year anniversary here on this conflict. And I just saw something on CNBC this week that Russians have incurred more losses in any war since World War II I think it is. You have to look at this seriously. Yes, we have about 11 to 12% cash in our portfolio right now to be opportunistic. I would raise that if we get more of a rally here and take some money off the table to be able to have some powder dry. And I think it's going to be how many portfolio managers have that factored into their year, right? I would argue less than 20%. I don't know if you know this, LS, or your listeners know this, but coming from the mutual fund world, there's a lot of prospectus language that has to be followed, right? One of those metrics is that you have to be 80% invested in most mutual funds at all times. Well, with only a 20% cash cushion if you have World War 3, good
1: luck. <laughs> I guess there's really nowhere to go with that except for to do exactly what you're doing and to be cautious and to have some assets on the side ready to deploy should you need to. What about our relationship with China? Do you think that's workable or are we coming to an impasse where we have to really divest ourselves and vice versa of anything Chinese financially?
2: That's also a great question. And I wish I had a more sophisticated answer, but I am not long anything China except some Chinese mining stocks and things that I understand, correct? Look, it's obvious that when they got rid of their zero COVID policy, that was a buy, right? you covered your Chinese shorts, you went long copper, you went long things that would benefit from that. And I did the same thing. But now you're starting to see like a rally that's getting a little bit long in the tooth, right? Are we just going to see China have this massive build out in their infrastructure? I don't think so. I think people are overestimating the growth potential there and underestimating what's happening in their real estate market and other parts of their markets.
1: Are you investing in the supply chain infrastructure, future infrastructure? And having said that, I know that China's involved in quite a bit of it in Africa and Latin America, Europe, Asia, pretty much everywhere.
2: I have no exposure there at all. We run a mining portfolio and an energy portfolio and that's it. But it is intriguing. I mean, given what's happened with COVID, it's probably a very investable space.
1: What do you love right now? What are you all excited about? What makes you giddy?
2: (laughs) To be honest with you, I have been shorting some things in the U.S. market because that is making me giddy. The prices that you're seeing on some of these travel stocks and some of these things where pretty much all of the good news is factored in, right? It's like, man, you have to keep putting up good quarter after good quarter for these stocks to keep going up. I kind of hedge our bets, us with some short positions from time to time, and we really got involved in that starting January 5 of last year when the Fed made it clear that they were going to mean business. And we had a fantastic year. We only had three positions that actually lost money on the long short side last year, which was our best batting average, if you will, ever. What else do I get excited about? I get excited about mining stocks. I mean, I've been in the mining space since the year 2000. I went to my advisor as I was getting smoked in the tech sector back then and said, you know, what do I do to protect myself? And he taught me about shorting and he taught me about gold and silver. I have expanded my knowledge over the years from 23 years ago to include copper and lithium and palladium and battery metals. And because I think, unlike many of my competitors, that you can make money in any type of mining stock. It doesn't have to be just gold and silver. So I'm not just focused on that. We focus on everything and look at different opportunities uh, as they come to us.
1: I would say you're probably accumulating some smart mining stocks and you're shorting things ahead of the recession. predicted.
2: that's a fair comment, but let's be clear, like mining for us is probably 80 to 85%. Our short right now is maybe 10 to 12%. So we're much more long than we are shorts, but we have a short list built so that if we get some outside black swan event, we're going to be going in heavily on the short side, up, up to probably about 30%.
1: And you're expecting something?
2: I don't know what that would be. I mean, obviously, China, Taiwan has been rumored for months now. But I think to your point, I think a lot of people forget that Russia and Ukraine, I think we've just gotten deadened to like the fact that this could just go off the rails at any moment, right? I mean, we're seeing the US put in how much money into this war. Like It's a serious event that people aren't taking as seriously as we are, right? So I think it's something that bears watching. And it's just an unfortunate situation that we have to be here.
1: Are we in a lithium bubble or is it sustainable, this attention that's been given to the lithium part of our sector?
2: It's a good question. I mean, I think we use a rightful approach, Ellis, and we're equity managers, right? So we're not buying LIT like the lithium ETF, which would track the price of lithium. We're going to buy lithium stocks that are completely undervalued versus the peer group. And we think that lithium is a little bit ahead of itself we've been saying that for a little bit here probably 3 months but can't ignore the fact that that subsector of mining along with say uranium and potentially copper has the easiest opportunity to raise money for juniors right now if you have something hot in the lithium space you can raise money a lot easier than if you just have a silver play somewhere right it's just a fact
1: i'd like to finish with one final question it's about the yukon territory actually do you think we're going to see exponential growth there ahead of all of the rest of Canada?
2: That's a great question. Once again, and I love when I can't answer something right off the top of my head because it's uh, I love to come back and have another shot at that. But I think right now, I would just say that Canada as a jurisdiction for me is less problematic than it is for most people that manage money. And I like that jurisdiction. But again, it's a rifle approach, right? Because the name I just mentioned earlier was right there. So you have to kind of look at that area like you would any area and weigh the cost benefit of putting money into that region, right? Like if you talk to people about Peru three years ago, they wouldn't have seen Castillo coming, right? But then Castillo came and just decimated mining stocks in that area. So what's woken me up here, Ellis, over the last 18 months or so is... The Perus, the Chiles, the Colombias, the Nicaraguas, all that stuff of the last 12 to 18 months in the news flow even surprised me. And I do this for a living, right? So, like, what is it going to do to the average investor? I think we need to put money into areas of the mining sector that we feel 100% comfortable with in good and bad times and start to hold core positions in certain names and then trade on the periphery. That's our strategy.
1: It would seem to me that project generation and mergers and acquisitions might be a less riskier place to put money in Latin America. Do you agree or not?
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And for that matter, you know, royalty companies are even a less risky place to put money in the mining sector, right? When you look at a couple of deals that got done last year, it seems to me that you could put some money in some small and mid-cap royalty companies because there's opportunity there for the big boys to snap them up.
1: How do we find you online for those that are hearing your name and listening to your voice for the very first time. Sure.
2: It's fennecconsulting.com. My personal email is john.fennec at yahoo.com. I'm very accessible. I try to get back to everyone within a day or two. Really, try to work with investors on their personal situation, Ellis. So we have prices on the website, but if someone comes to me with 10 grand and says, hey, I want to get started in this, and there's a grad student somewhere, we've helped a lot of people that were hurricane victims, grad students, people who had parents that had COVID, whatever. I'm trying to get people more involved in the space rather than be the highest price option out there. So hopefully we'll get some traffic.
1: Well, John, it's great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next conversation and I look forward to seeing you somewhere on the road this year. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Austin. I've been speaking with John Fennec of the Fennec Consulting Group. Find him at FennecConsulting.com. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report was sponsored by York Harbor Metals. Trading as YORK on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTC is YORKF. York Harbor Metals is an exploration and development company focused on the York Harbor Copper Zinc Silver Project, a past-producing mine located approximately 27 kilometers from Corner Brook, Newfoundland. York Harbor has core drilled approximately 19,260 meters since July 2021 to confirm and extend the footprint of the project. Find them at yorkharbormetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
1: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp., a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO, and in the U.S. on the OTC QB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Santo Tomas hosts a multi-billion pound copper resource defined by historical drilling and currently being confirmed by ongoing exploration drilling by Oroco. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface, and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation, and Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions, with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances, and the year ahead is rich with catalysts. Such as a formal resource definition and economic evaluation, each of which carries the possibility of a company valuation re rating. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs, as a result of dramatic shifts in metals' importance to industrial and consumer markets. Adam, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you today. Thanks, Alice. I look forward to speaking. Tell us what's been happening in the last month and a half or so
3: since we spoke at the beginning of February. Roco has just published a news release on the the most recent drill results. In there, we describe additional successful holes at our Santa Tomas project, and that we're nearing the end of the first phase of drilling, which has so far constituted about 49,000 meters of drilling. That's almost 30 miles of drill core if laid end to end. 76 holes have now been drilled at Santa Tomas. We've tested the mineralized structure down to a depth of 700 meters, almost 2,300 feet, which is double the depth that it had been drilled historically. We've tested 3,500 meters of strike. That's over two miles of length of a mineralized structure at Santa Tomas, including an additional mile to the north that has been tested by exploratory holes, which were successful in finding copper, but not drilled with enough definition to define a resource that can wait till later. So we are nearing the end of a very successful and very large first phase of drilling. It has been an open-up success. Our goal was to test a very large historical resource that sent it to mass, some seven or eight billion pounds of copper in that historical resource. We have largely recreated the drill success of that past program and significantly expanded the area that has been drill-tested and where copper mineralization has been delineated. So it's been a terrific success. What will follow is a mineral resource estimate and an economic assessment of the potential of a mine at Santa Tomas. When do you think we might see that happening? So the company has provided some indication in the past of when both the resource estimate and the preliminary economic assessment will be published. I would expect to see both of those in the next two quarters with the mineral resource estimate coming first.
1: The copper prices made a nice comeback. We're definitely making some headway in that area. Do you feel that there's an invigoration going on now within the mining industry specifically related to copper, and how has it affected the Santa Tomás project?
3: Copper is the metal to be exploring for and developing right now. It is the driver of our decarbonization and electrification efforts. It is the one metal that all the world's major mining companies are looking to expand in, and it is the one metal that will carry the economy over the next century. In fact, Goldman Sachs has called copper the new oil, underscoring its importance. So yes, there is a lot of attention that investors are paying to copper exploration and development companies like ourselves. It is the right time to be developing an asset like Santa Tomas, the end of a period of a rapid decline in the rate of discovery of new copper resources. So to be a company on the verge of publishing a compliant mineral resource, potentially containing many billions of pounds of copper is a very good thing to be. Copper demand is forecast to increase at much higher than historical rates. The world is set to use more copper in the next generation than it has in all of industrial history. And it's doing so at a time when historical copper resources, those big sources of copper to industry are aging and production is expected to decline from them. And the rate of discovery of new copper resources has hit all-time lows and the pipeline of new projects to meet future demand is at historic lows. So copper explorers, copper producers and developers like ourselves will be in the future price setters, not price takers. The forecast of copper prices in the future is sufficiently high, I think, to suggest to investors that they should be positioned in copper. There was a time where copper was not coupled
1: to gold. You'd see a rise in gold, and then again, copper would take a dive if the gold market was
3: doing well. Now we see them sort of moving together. Yeah, that's a very good point, Alice. Copper has come to be seen as a good investment. It is understood to respond better to inflation than even gold does. And the investment world is waking up to the potential for copper, not simply to meet industrial demand, but copper exposure as the right thing to do for an investment portfolio. Copper does respond in times of economic growth better than gold does. Gold tends to respond better in times of crisis, as we saw last week. Almost immediately after the vacuum crisis seemed to be on its way to resolution over the weekend, gold prices subsided and copper prices increased. So as we move forward into this decade, it's forecast that the deficits between supply and demand are going to start to grow and the copper prices are going to increase at much higher than historical rates. So it's a very exciting time for investors to look into exposure to copper. And in particular, companies like ourselves who are going to transition from being exploration companies to being companies with a compliant copper resource. It allows the investment community to start to value companies based on contained metal, based on discounted future cash flows. And we see that as an opportunity in Aroko to increase the enterprise value of the company and attract an entirely new set of bigger and more serious investors. Well, now certainly would seem like the time. Adam, what have we got coming up during the spring and summer months? Our first phase of drilling at Santa Tomas as I mentioned earlier, very large 30 miles of drill core, 76 drill holes will come to an end soon. Following that, we can expect to see a mineral resource estimate using that drill data. And following that, an economic assessment of a Mass, which looked at the capital costs, the operating costs, And the potential cash flows at various copper prices and gives figures such as net present value, internal rate of return, the types of things that investors can use to evaluate sandwich mass in relation to its peers. A relatively small group of similarly large and advanced projects held by junior mining companies that are going to be the source of new copper production in the future. And which can be expected to be the subject of acquisitive interest by the world's large mining companies.
1: I'm sure you know there's a great deal of concern now in the market, Adam, with regard to a potential recession, the likelihood, or hopefully the stalling off of a general bank failure. I feel like we may have dodged a bullet recently, but maybe that there's more ammunition in that particular gun. How do you feel going forward
3: with regard to the equities and specifically Oroco? The exploration and development of a project of large descent to mass typically takes many years, though that period of time can span a number of capital market cycles. So we have seen those cycles throughout the development of santa tomas and we have moved the project forward despite them but i think the current copper price is just over four dollars which in the context of history is a high price so if this is the price of copper we get during uncertain times then i very much look forward to what the price of copper might be during more certain times and periods of growth and periods of increased demand from industry so i think if we look at the capital market cycles and we look at the cycle of rising and falling metal prices in particular. Rising and falling copper prices, and we overlay Oroco's exploration plans and expectations of the release of, for instance, compliant resource estimate and a compliant preliminary economic assessment. We can see that perhaps this is the right time and the right asset, and we will be coming into better equity markets at a time when a is releasing the kind of information that can be used to both value the company, to pick definitive values on the asset we have, as well as to attract the kind of acquisitive interest that big copper assets are going to see from major mining companies. So the idea of releasing compliant resource, a preliminary economic assessment, and doing so at a time of rising copper prices and improving equity markets is really quite exciting for us. Well, Adam, it's always great to
1: catch up with you. I look forward to the next time that we chat. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for joining me today in the
3: program. And to you as well, Ellis. Thank you so much. It's always good to talk and to share the story of our company with your listeners. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development
1: for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, OrocoResourceCorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin
2: subscribe to the ellis martin newsletter it's free go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up
4: form
0: this is the ellis martin report join ellis now for a conversation with anil varach the executive vice president and director of step gold trading in the u.s on the otcqx as stpgf and on the toronto exchange as stgo Stepgold is Mongolia's premier precious metals company and is projected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold from the current operational oxide zone of the ATO gold mine in 2023. The company also completed a feasibility study into expansion of the ATO gold mine to approximately 100,000 ounces of gold per annum from the development of underlying fresh rock ores.
1: Anil, welcome back to the program. Great to visit with you today. Thanks, Ellis. Great to be back. It's been quite a long time. You've done quite a bit in Mongolia, and you're now in Peru. Give us an update what's been happening with the company. It's been a great
5: year, actually. The last 12 months for us, finally, what I say is we're on stable footing. As our viewers and listeners may remember, in 2021, there were supply chain issues everywhere in the world. Obviously, impacting us in Mongolia, where we had issues getting reagent. We had the material, the process, we had production ready to go and online. And then we had to take it offline for almost nine months or so because of the zero COVID issue with China. Since then, we've solved all those supply chain issues. We've been in productions for the last twelve months without any hiccups. So steady, stable production since March of last year. And we're coming out of winter, so we're going to hit the ground running this spring. Being in production for the last twelve months on a heap bleach means our spring and summer months should be pretty fantastic in terms. The of cash flow in ounces produced on a monthly basis, as we saw last fall going into the winter. So that's one big, I would say, win and stable position we're in on our producing mine and the oxide mine in Mongolia. So everyone knows that gold has ticked up probably about 150 bucks plus in the last 10 days. That's not a bad thing as well as a producer. And we continue to expand on our expansion plan in uh, Mongolia, the sulfide mine that should come online in about two years' time. That takes our production to over 100,000 ounces per annum with a 12-year mine life today. We put out that update about two weeks ago. So that's pretty significant to have a double production profile in about two years' time in Mongolia, low-cost production. And we'll have the ability to take that cash flow to inject into our next project. Hence your question in the beginning there. Peru. So just during PDAC, actually, last Monday, we announced the acquisition of Anacortis Mining. That's two and a half million ounces in Peru. It's a tier one jurisdiction. So it offsets Mongolia in terms of jurisdictional risk that a lot of people tend to point out. Not one single country, one single asset. We're not just an emerging market company anymore a frontier market company. Peru is a fantastic and big mining jurisdiction. And the asset we just are in the middle of closing and announced is very similar to what we did in Mongolia. It's an oxide at surface, it has almost 600,000 ounces between oxides and leachable sulfides. So that's three times the size of our ATO phase one mine in Mongolia and still has 1.9 million ounces of sulfides below with a lot of opportunity to grow. So it's a nice development project we acquired for roughly $6 an ounce before this gold price moved. And. And fits very nicely with our development pipeline. So in about two years or so, once our expansion is online in Mongolia, we can then have the ability to build another mine now in Peru, an oxide mine, which we've already successfully built in Mongolia. So a natural fit, I guess, in that way. And we were just lucky to be able to lock up the deal, something that we, we looked at it for the last couple of years.
1: You've been looking at stepping out, so to speak, from your project in Mongolia. Is that it? I had no idea that your expansion plan was more or less going to be global.
5: We were a Mongolia-focused company from Cincinnati inception in end of 2016, 2017, we do hear the market best for whatever reason. They want scale, which we now have. We're just under 5 million ounces today. They want diversification. They want multiple assets, multiple jurisdictions. So we offer that. And that's where you're seeing most companies get the best value in the market in terms of re-rating or trading multiples. So we've listened to investors for whatever reason, they, they're not comfortable with just one country or just Mongolia. And now we're offering a tier one jurisdiction at a very accretive level, which is a very way to grow our company. And I think we'll continue to do so over the coming years and have a platform that's might be even more global. Well,
1: I I certainly understand getting involved in Peru and Latin America, but let's not diminish the importance of Mongolia. The jurisdiction there is sound. The market may not completely understand it, but it's a great jurisdiction. Absolutely. Let's be very
5: clear. We're not going anywhere. We have a first mover advantage in Mongolia. Our team's been there since 2009. Successfully built and sold one company in 2011 for half a billion cash. We built Step Gold. We We have a a resource-rich country that's still underexplored, still open for a lot of opportunities to discover and build world-class assets, just like Oitogoy that Rio Tinto now has consolidated. But you know, talking to some of our investors, no matter, I'll use an example of like Fosterville in, in Australia, no matter how good our asset will be in Mongolia, we'll never get a premium for a variety of reasons. So we'll continue to grow in Mongolia, but now we've added this offset that actually opens up more eyeballs to our story. We did a couple of weeks ago announce that we're also dual listing in Hong Kong. Later this year. And the purpose of that was, again, liquidity valuation. And we're an Asian gold producer today, a gold and silver producer today. And on the Hong Kong exchange, there's only about seven other producers. So we're one of a handful of producers that on a comparable basis trade much higher than our valuation. And we're obviously in the backyard. So it's well understood. It's not seen in Asia as a exotic country or frontier market as much as it is on TSX. So on the TSX, we'll remain listed, but we are one of hundreds of companies. On the Hong Kong exchange. we're one of a handful. So I think that will also bring more eyeballs, more investors. I think we'll close the valuation gap
1: that way as well, too. I think your CEO, Matthew, he's Australian and well-connected in Hong Kong?
5: Yep, exactly, exactly. So he is Australian, well-connected in Hong Kong, lived there for a while, and obviously with Hunu Cold, his first success in Mongolia. Certainly, and now Hong Kong, we've done a couple non-deal roadshows in the last, I guess, six months to gauge the interest from mainland and from within Hong Kong, and certainly a lot of interest in what we're doing.
1: How was this project acquired? The Sardex project, and how much dilution did it add to your share structure?
5: The actual price tag is around basis twenty-two Canadian based on the trading price, so twenty-two Canadian for shares only of Step Gold. We've acquired this project. And as a reminder, we acquired the ATO project in. Mongolia for 20 million US cash in 2017, and that was 1.2 million ounces at the time, with only 210,000 ounces of oxides. Today, we're buying for shares only at about 21 to 22 million Canadian, two and a half million ounces, 600,000 ounces of I mentioned leachable oxides and sulfides, 450,000 ounces of those are oxides and 1.9 in the sulfide. We've doubled the size of the company for less. We entered into Mongolia years ago. That's a fantastic price tag. So dilution is. 21 to 22% of uh, Step today, but it's highly accretive because we're buying it at $6 an ounce. We're doubling our resource in exact asset that we know. There's a lot of synergies already. So it was just an opportune time. That's why we moved very quickly to lock up this deal before gold price moves, which it already has, and before other people get wins at this type of asset. So it's a highly accretive deal. Unfortunately, Step is still trading well below where it should be. That's just a market that we deal with. But I think together, we can re-rate and recover together. So we're basically buying it at 0.1 times the nav. Trace Cruces today at $1,700 gold at a 5% discount has 170 million US MPV at nine hundred dollars gold, which is still below today's pricing, is at $270 million US. So, Emmy bought it for 20 ish Canadian. So, I would say it's a fantastic deal.
1: And how many shares does the company have now overall?
5: So, Step Gold today has 72.5 million shares. We'll end up issuing roughly, let's just call it 20 ish million shares again. So, we're still under 100 million shares outstanding as a producer with expansion. In Mongolia, that doubles our production profile to over 100,000 ounces over 12-year mine life and just under 5 million ounces with the development pipeline now in Peru. So we look good compared to a lot of comps. And, and just throwing it out there, on a performer basis, combined companies will be under 0.2 times NAV. And companies like ourselves with the resource base or the production profile trade between 0.6 to 0.8 times. They have market caps of 200 million to 2 billion. And right now, we're as a combined company, it will be about 100 million Canadian or 70th. US. Everyone's going to have a lot of opportunity to ride that recovery and rebate.
1: That does look extremely attractive with a lot of producers around the world in the junior space, or shall I say, if you anyway, some of them have two to three to four hundred million shares, and you don't. And your value is just what you stated. Anil, what can we see coming up in the near future? Any more acquisitions, or are you good for now?
5: Well, listen, we're always looking. We were looking at this asset for a couple of years. We got it in a much cheaper price than we were willing to pay a couple years ago. We're always looking for more assets to roll into our platform, into our development Pipeline. So that could happen. I think it, it'll take more time for the, those assets. As I mentioned, we have the Hong Kong listing in the fall. I think that'll be a fantastic way to grow the liquidity and investor base in the company. Last but not least is the expansion in Mongolia. We're, we're currently financing now, so we should be able to announce the market that I guess we're fully funded this summer to continue to finish construction for the expansion into the sulfide in Mongolia. That's the cash cow for us.
1: Well, perfect. It's always great to visit with you, Anil. I look forward to an update anytime you have. Have them. Thanks so much for joining me today again on the program. Thanks so much, Alice.
0: Alice has been speaking with Anil Varach, the Executive Vice President and Director of Step Gold, trading in the U.S. on the OTC QX as STPGF and on the Toronto Exchange as STGO. Find out more info on the company by going to their website, stepgold.com. That's S T E P P E Gold.com. Hear this interview again on our website. Ellis.gold. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a
1: discussion with Bradley Rourke, the CEO and President of Scotty Resources, trading as SCOT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as SCTSF. It has often been said that the best place to look for gold is where it has been found before. Scotty Resources is an exploration stage company engaged in the exploration and evaluation of gold and silver properties located in the Golden Triangle of British Columbia, Canada, an area which has shown great potential to host high-grade gold and silver deposits. The company believes that mineral properties within the Golden Triangle are undervalued due to a lack of available infrastructure, a scenario which is currently changing. By acquiring undervalued properties and applying modern exploration techniques, data interpretation, and 3D modeling, Scotty Resources aims to build a substantial geological resource in the Golden Triangle. This approach is intended to dramatically increase the value of the company's existing properties and advance them to a position where they may become operationally viable. Scotty Resources owns a 100% interest in or the option to acquire the Blueberry, Domino, and past-producing Scotty Goldmine Zones of the Scotty Goldmine Project located in the heart of the Golden Triangle. In addition, the company owns a 100% interest in the Georgia Project, Tide North and Sulu properties, and over 85% of the claims within the Cambria Project, all located in the Stewart Mining Camp of the Golden Triangle. A corporate finance executive with 30 years' experience in mining, energy, and real estate, Mr. Rourke holds a proven track record with successful startup companies. His leadership experience and entrepreneurial approach have given new direction and scale to the Scotty Resources efforts in the Golden Triangle. Brad, welcome back to the show. We haven't chatted in several months. Bring us up to date with regard to Scotty Resources and the Blueberry Zone.
6: Yeah, no, it's been a successful season. I think we've got most of the news out coming out for the year. We do have one more geological uh, weighted news release, but that's far and away from the blueberry zone. So I think for what most people are paying attention to, kind of have the last results out on blueberry and super fantastic, successful drill season, 2022 to fall up to 2021. Again, the <laughs> market. For me and everybody else, is what a time to be alive and to put out some of the bombs that we've had because it's been fantastic. And so we're really happy and did a little financing here just a couple, three weeks ago, and no warrant. It was done in a matter of a couple hours, and we still are able to raise the money. And ever. Getting ready to drill for 2023. Drills will be turning in June.
1: I looked over your news releases, as I have to do before every interview on this show. What really stood out on February 21st is the fact that you intercepted 53.2 grams per ton gold over three meters on the Blueberry Zone, and that is about 1.87, or almost two ounces per ton of gold. That is what I would call significant.
6: Sure. Every news release had a 100-gram-meter hole this year, Alice, so far. But it is a great, great intercept, of course. But when you see how it relates to the other intercepts, which gets people excited, and so I encourage people to get on the website and just kind of look at the spacing, how that relates to the other 100-gram-meter holes. On Blueberry alone, I think we have 28 holes that are 100-gram-meters or more. When you look at the spacing of those, they're not all next to each other. I mean, it's over a nice strike length of a kilometer and a half, and we've only gone down 400 meters, and a lot of those are down at depth. It appears to be getting wider, and so... We'll inch it down another couple hundred meters for next season. But yeah, I think 28 holes and on the blueberry alone, less than 23,000 meters in total, or 100-gram-meter holes. So I think that's extraordinary from anybody's uh, measurements.
1: Which is about four ounces per ton, audience. Four ounces per ton.
6: I guess it is. I mean, at the end of the day, a 100-gram-meter would be 10 grams over 100 meters, or you could go 30 grams, which is called out an ounce over three meters. See? Yeah, under four, but you're in the ballpark there. I have some that are more than four.
1: Well, it's hard for me to look at a company right now that's reporting one or two grams per ton gold when you have something like this in a jurisdiction that's incredible in a place where it can actually be mined. Yeah,
6: we're blessed from all fronts. We've got green power right on site. We have a mine permit. We can drive right to our site. And mills on either side. So Ascot, looks like they have their business worked out. And I know they're working hard even up in Stewart right now getting reports. saying think they're pouring gold in 12 months. So that's a big catalyst for the area. And I'm really happy for Ascot. And BHP came into the area. I mean, that's somewhat recent news up at Brixton. And lots of stuff happening in the sector. We're in the right area. And, and we're blessed. We desire nothing for, for infrastructure. We have it all. Some of the easiest places to get to in the Golden Triangle. And to find that kind of grade, we were quite excited.
1: So what's the next step, Brad?
6: Well, pretty boring. We're not going to do anything different. We're going to do the exact same as we did last year and the year before. We haven't come up with the exact meters that we're going to do for 2023. Pretty well-funded right now. Probably just under $8 million in the bank. I'm on my way to Switzerland this weekend for the SMI conference. Pretty pleased that we were invited to speak at that one. And then about 20% of the company owned out of Switzerland, so I'll get to sit with those partners and kind of just get the finishing touches on what we're going to do for 2023 and, and what people can expect. But yeah, much of the same, and there's so much more to explore on Blueberry, and we'll just keep building it out. You know, a lot of questions I always get is, when are you going to come up with a resource? Well, we're working towards that. All our drilling is compliant, but until we know how big the borders are, which we don't, we'll keep exploring. And theoretically, we should be getting smarter every season, and, and so far that's been the case, so... Let's see what we can do for our fifth drill season, but we'll probably have one of the more healthier drill programs for a junior exploration company and anticipate 20,000 meters and maybe a little bit more than that. We just got to put the final touches on that. We've got the contractors all lined up and the people lined up and it's about uh, waiting for the market. I mean, gold had a nice little run this week, as you know, I don't have to explain it to you. Uh, Hopefully that trickles down to our sector and, Usually it takes a little bit of time to let the majors go, and then the single asset producer. That's how it works, but we sure welcome that the uptick in the gold price. Yeah, you're not going to see anything different. We're just going to do what we've always been doing.
1: Speaking of the majors, it's probably too early to ask this question, but are any of them sniffing around right now at the Blueberry Zone?
6: Well, there's lots, I guess, would be the honest answer. We just come out of PDAC, Toronto. We were in Corshack. You know, I knew it was an honor because you only get in there by technical committee, vetting your rock. What we saw is that a lot of people that we have been speaking to, it was a great time to come and look at the core, but we had a whole bunch of companies we'd never spoken to. Yeah, there's no shortage of the bigger companies looking at us. That's great. Just right now, they don't buy in the market, and we're not for sale at the moment.
1: Well, Brad, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to our next chat. Keep up the good work, and happy hunting on the road. All right. Well, thanks very much. I've been speaking with Bradley Rourke, the CEO and president of Scotty Resources, trading as SCOT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as SCTSF. To learn more, head to the company's website, scottyresources.com. Scotty is spelled S-C-O-T-T-I-E. That's scottyresources.com. I'm Ellis Martin. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Chris Taylor is the chairman and founder of Kodiak Copper Corporation. He's a structural and economic geologist with more than 20 years of industry and research experience with both mid-tier producer and junior exploration companies. He's the founder, CEO, and president of Great Bear Resources, which made a district-scale gold discovery in Canada and was taken over by Kinross Gold for $1.8 billion. He's also a former geologist with Imperial Metals, exploring for copper porphyries in North America. Kodiak Copper trades on the TSX Venture Exchange as KDK.V, and in the U.S. on the OTC as KDK.CF. The company's most advanced asset is the 100% owned MPD Copper Gold Porphyry Project in the prolific Quenelle Trough in southern British Columbia, Canada, where Kodiak made a discovery of high-grade mineralization, in 2020 at the Gate Zone, which has since been expanded to considerable size. MPD has all the hallmarks of a district-scale multi-centered porphyry system with several targets with similar signatures to the Gate Zone yet to be tested, and multiple new targets being generated across the large 147-kilometer project. 2022 saw the discovery of a parallel porphyry trend at the nearby prime zone adding further upside and size potential to the gate zone and the discovery of the bear zone, a new high-grade gold silver zone. With a lot more potential to be unlocked at MPD, Kodiak is looking forward to continuing its discipline and systematic approach to exploration to generate value for shareholders through discovery success. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Chris today on the program. Chris, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, Ellis, it's been a while. I can't remember... Exactly when, but it's some time now. A few years ago when the stock of Great Bear Resources was well under a dollar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I filed that. It it was a while back. I have to tell you, I became a shareholder of Kodiak simply because of what you've done with Great Rare Resources. And I met Claudia at a conference about a year and a half ago. I didn't even need to hear anything more. I just didn't want to be left out of what you were potentially going to be doing here with Kodiak. That was an easy close and she wasn't even trying. I have to congratulate you first off on the award that you just won, the Bill Dennis Award, the PDAC 2023 Bill Dennis Award recipient for the discovery of the Dixie Gold deposit when other Others believe all the multi-million ounce deposits in Ontario's Red Lake Camp had been found. And yet you found one and you took it all the way to the finish line. Can we expect to see that sort of good fortune in British Columbia with the MPD Copper Gold Porphyry Project? God,
7: what a loaded question there, Ellis. First off, it wasn't me that found the Dixie discovery. It was our team at Great Bear. So it's really a team effort. I said that right during the Bill Dennis Award, but I suppose like, you know, somebody has to stand up there and actually accept the award on behalf of the team. So, you know, in my case of the former CEO, that ended up being myself. And then the second part of your question, it was interesting with the Kodiak property when we put that into the Company because I remember getting guided around by the prospector and the owner at the time showing me what the rocks were. And it was pretty obvious, having worked in a number of porphyry copper gold systems previously, back when I was a project geologist many years ago, drilled a lot of these things. And it was obvious that there was potential to make a discovery. And lo and behold, even in our first drill season, like just over two years ago, we made a new high grade copper gold discovery at the time. So, can I guarantee the same outcome as Great Bear? Well, obviously not. But it's not like I put the gold in the ground project or put the copper in the ground at uh, NPD. But what I can say is that there's a very good team at Kodiak as well, like there was a great bear. And if the metal is in the ground, we will find it. And so far, that process going well.
1: I definitely appreciate what you're saying. It is a team effort for sure, but you've got to have a really good spidey sense that's built with your years as a geologist and really sniffing out what might be good. You're almost like a prospector, but really not. You understand how prospectors talk and and how excited they get when they find something.
7: Yeah, of course. It's actually relatively simple find mineralization. As a geologist, you always have a bit of a prospector, a little bit of that blood in you. And it's certainly exciting when you find new mineralization in areas. There's a big difference between mineralization and an economic core body. That's what you can never guarantee. You know, you can understand the science, have a good nose for the ground, geology, and find the mineralization, whether it comes a big economic ore body is another
1: thing. Well, certainly jurisdiction and terrain, weather, all that factor into it. Would you have been excited about this project or something like this with this type of mineralization had it not been in the exact area in BC that it is in the Quaynell zone?
7: Yeah, you know, the Quinnell trough, like I worked at a mine called Mount Polly when I was the project geologist, material metal, put it into production in 2005 or actually back into production. We found some high-grade copper gold zones there as well, which is actually the momentum that got the project rolling again. Was having the high-grade material to blend in there. So I know those rocks and the MPD project Kodiak it's in the same belt of rocks, and it's known to host like dozens of these free copper gold systems along hundreds of kilometers strike of length. It's really a significant known host of copper mineralization. So. The area that the MPD project is in, though, I mean, it fits the criteria that we had at Great Bear, whereas we wanted to be working in an area we knew if we made a major discovery, it could be developed because of access and infrastructure and other things. And kind of the same formula, like Great Bear and MPD were both located like right off the side of a highway, power lines going through the area and in a mining jurisdiction where there's active mines in the region. And really, those are the factors that you look for. If you're gonna to try to find something up on one of the remote islands in the Canadian Arctic or some tropical jungle somewhere, your threshold would develop very much higher. When you find something in a mining district like MPD is, your threshold for getting project reproduction. Is so much lower, and it's just a more efficient process for shareholders.
1: Let's talk about the threshold for a transaction. You had one with Great Bear and Kinross. Is it slower with copper, typically, than it is with gold? Currently, the timing depends on the motivation of the potential acquiring
7: party. People kind of lose sight of that a lot of the time. And if you've got a company like Kinross, which was really looking forward to getting involved in the North American jurisdiction, but Canada in particular, in a big way, that can be an incentive to getting a deal done. So with copper, sometimes the projects are big and they require quite a bit of money to get rolling. But it really comes down to the motivation of parties. And in our area of BC, there are significant copper mines. So one of those is operated by Tech Resources, our largest shareable. And the reason is that they're quite familiar with the geology. And they know that if you make a discovery in that area, again, your ability to get it through to production is going to be higher than in that jurisdiction that they're not familiar with.
1: I hope you don't mind this question or this line of conversation, but I invested not as a trader, because I'm not a trader when I invest in companies. I invested as a long-term player looking for the transaction, which I think will eventually come. And you don't have to comment on that, whether it's a year, two years, five years, whatever. Put your money into a company. You put your money into the team, actually, which is why I invested. Yeah. And, and then you just wait now. In this particular area, is a transaction dependent on the market, let's say, because we saw some definite moves in the Great Bear market. We saw a lot of shareholder attention, and that really drove you to a great position where a transaction just made sense. Are the dynamics with Kodiak Copper quite a bit different in that sense compared to potentially with Great Bear?
7: Well, there's some similarity. Like, what it reminds me of right now, the stage that Kodiak's at, is similar to the stage that Great Bear was at when it had found the first of its new discoveries. So... In the Great Bear case, we found what was called the hinge zone. And that was the 2018 discovery. And it bolted the market cap of the company kind of into the range where Kodiak Copper is right now. But it wasn't until we found the next discovery, the LP fault zone, that we really started generating like much higher share prices and a lot of market momentum. So it's great when you've made the initial discovery on a project, and that's how I feel Kodiak is at right now. But there's very few of the targets that Kodiak have even been tested yet. And that reminds me of where we're at in Great Bear around like 2018 or so. And then again, the major discovery came the following year. So with Kodiak this year, the objective is to go in and test a number of these new targets, which is honestly the work that I enjoy the most in geology is that exploration work. And actually testing out the ideas that you have. In the case of Kodiak, though, we know there's good copper results at a number of additional porphyry centers down on the southern part of the property. So, really want to get the drill there, start testing those things out, see how big they are, how far down they go, how they might connect together as well, which is a typical case of some of these systems. And I think that's going to be much more exciting than a definition drilling on a discovery you made a couple years ago. That's great to do. You need to do it. You need to see it's big. You need to see it's. You need to see all these other factors, but really what we're here to do is discover more, and that's what Kodiak's working towards.
1: Hypothetically, if we saw those kinds of discoveries today, those sorts of results, would it move the market? What kind of market do you think we're in right now?
7: Well, for copper in particular, it's a very, very, very good market. And I usually don't use so many berries in one statement. But the bottom line is I was at the BMO Gold Conference just about a few weeks ago now. And it was amazing listening to guys like Friedman talking about the fact that copper is really going to be the driving motivation for a lot of these big mining companies. And there was a slide in his presentation that I was paying attention to. And just to electrify the current vehicle fleet, we would need to mine as much copper in the next 20 years as we've mined in all of human history beforehand. So I don't know if that's accurate or not. I haven't looked into it, but I'm repeating a factoid. And if that's the case, I mean, there just isn't enough copper to go around. So that makes me very bullish on the price and bullish on the probably the prospect that larger companies will like to own and control copper mineralized systems and prospective ground because they know that there's gonna be a real bottleneck on supply. So that's what gets me excited. So I think we're in a really good market copper. And the timing in that sense couldn't be better.
1: I remember probably back in 2018, if not 2017, we were in Toronto, you and I, and the majors were literally physically in some capacity, whether it was their geologist or some of the executives of the company are literally hanging around with you. I do (laughs) remember that. You do have relationships with the majors right now. And I would say that that's still the case with Kodiak and perhaps even more so. So are you feeling that excitement from these people? I mean, are they really sniffing around right now and trying to do as many M Ace as they can
7: it's odd you know i would say that's pretty accurate Ellis there's been more interest for a company and a project at this stage than you would typically see so kodiak has gone onto the radar screens of more people than i would have expected given the stage of discovery it's an early stage story at this point in time but we've had a positive proof of concept with the gate zone discovery it showed that there is high grade copper on the project and that really got a lot of people's attention and like i was just saying the market back Drop to deliver that kind of discovery to the market couldn't be better.
1: Well, I'm definitely excited by it. Now, your plans for 2023 include up to 25,000 meters of drilling in multiple target areas. That is quite aggressive, I would say, for one season. Yeah,
7: but we do have a long work season. It's possible at MPD because of the infrastructure access to work all year, but we do like to take a few months off in the winter and actually think about what we've hit over the course of the year and study or do geochemistry, do like 3D inversions on some of the geophysics and everything. So it's a lot of drilling to do in one year, but at the same time, the drilling is warranted. We have a lot of targets that we need to hit and there's a lot of results we need to analyze. So I would say it's a very realistic target as well.
1: I say there's great opportunity in a market that has pulled back Quite a bit. And I'm talking about the equities in general. The price of copper is really strong right now at $4.17. It's even more of an opportunity now than when I came in about a year and a half ago. I think I bought it around a dollar or so. It's interesting. We put that
7: Mount mine I mentioned, I remember, I think the copper price was around $0.50 a pound when we put that thing into production. So you got to think like the multiples of that value right now, and we have the ability here to take advantage of being able to raise money, conduct a big exploration program, and really deliver a result of the market against a good backdrop. And it doesn't often cooperate that way. The market doesn't often deliver you sort of excited motivation right at the moment where you have the ability to go out and satisfy it with potentially making more discoveries. So I think it is a good lineup in that sense. And as long as Mother Nature is cooperative this year, which is thing we always have our fingers crossed for it's a good time to be doing the kind of copper exploration that Kodiak is
1: doing. And it's potentially a good time to take a look at Kodiak Copper in general, audience. That's entirely up to you. We don't make any recommendations. We're much too biased to do so. Chris Taylor, Chairman, Kodiak Copper, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you again. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Yeah, great to see you again, Ellis, Let's not make it like another four-year gap here. Cheers. I've been speaking with Chris Taylor, chairman of Kodiak Copper Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as KDK.V and in the U.S. on the OTC as KDK.CF. Find the company on their website, Kodiak Copper Corp. Com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with my friend Alexandra Woodyer-Sharon, the CEO and president of Empress Royalty, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as EMPR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EMPYF. Empress Royalty is a global royalty and streaming creation company providing investors with a diversified portfolio of gold and silver investments. Since publicly listing in December of 2020, Empress Royalty has built a portfolio of 17 Precious metal investments and is actively investing in mining companies with development and production stage projects who require additional non dilutive capital. Empress Royalty applies a financially disciplined approach to investing in these cost effective operations with strong, experienced management teams and excellent upside potential. This business model capitalizes on the stable cash flow and long term capital gains of streaming and royalty investments, which allow Empress Royalty to generate revenue and create value for its shareholders. Empress Royalty is pleased to have Endeavor Financial and Terra Capital as strategic partners who allow Empress Royalty to not only access global investment opportunities, but also bring unique mining finance expertise, deal structuring, and access to capital markets. Ms. has over 20 years of experience in the mining industry. Alexandra started at PricewaterhouseCoopers before joining Endeavor Financial, a global mining finance advisory firm. During her investment banking career in London, London. She was director of Structured Financing and was involved in the successful completion of over $1.5 billion in financings for clients including Bima Gold, European Minerals, Nevsun Resources, Uranium One, and Wheaton River Minerals. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the program.
4: Lovely to see you, Alice. Very happy to be here. Since this is
1: the first time you're on our program, please give us an overview of Empress Royalty.
4: I would love to. Empress Royalty is a royalty and streaming creation company. We're focused exclusively on precious metals. We currently have a portfolio of 17 investments, and three of those are bringing in revenue into Empress.
1: And I met with one of the companies that you're affiliated with that you gave $10 million to. When I was in Miami a few days ago at Mines & Money, Charles Fife, he's with Sierra Sun, and once again, you gave them $10 million, and they are absolutely doing a lot of great things in Peru.
4: Sierra Sun Group is fantastic. We invested in them over a year ago, year and a half ago. We invested $10 million, and we structured this deal. We're getting 4.5% of their gold as a gold stream, up to 11,000 ounces, and then 1% life of mine. So that's going to bring in over $2 million of revenue uh, U.S. into Empress annually. And an asset value is $15 million. This was one that was a mine that was started by Boya in 2002. It was purchased by Sierra Sun Group, Charles's company in 2016, produced over a million ounces to date. So we provided them with the capital they needed to expand the production. And they've been doing that. And to date, we've received over... 1,000 ounces of gold from them. I'm very excited about this. And they have a lot of amazing social programs that they do within the country. They're really great operators.
1: Well, it's really important to really take care of the the communities that are in the districts that you are mining in or planning to mine in and to build those strong relationships. When I spoke with Charles, he spent quite a bit of time showing me what that was all about, as well as the safety protocols that they have in place there, which are really important too.
4: Yeah, no, They've got an amazing um, safety program there. Um, you know, I really enjoy watching, obviously, we've got weekly calls with them and monthly reporting and we get all the stats, but also just even on their LinkedIn in terms of the safety programs they've got in place. When it comes to social programs, they've been unbelievable operators. I mean, they've got a fantastic reforestation program they're working on. They're just going through the process of getting qualified by the Better Gold initiative. So they'll actually already, part of a gold is being bought by a watch manufacturer in Switzerland, and they're paying 10% of spot price. And that 10% is going directly into foundation in the country. And that is helping build out uh, water systems, um, infrastructure. So they're a great, great operator from the social side as well.
1: So really, it's community first before you do anything anywhere in the world. And you are very proactive as are your partners in that.
4: Absolutely. All of our investments have a strong ESG focus into the projects that we're going into and the communities that they're doing work. The one with Mozambique we've invested in, that's a gold royalty that we have there. They're very involved with the community in terms of helping them grow in the agricultural side and providing food to the local mining operators. So there's a lot of different programs that our operators are involved with.
1: Tell us about how this company was founded, your background, and what your focus is primarily with Empress Royalty.
4: Absolutely, so my background is I'm ex-PWC. I joined Endeavor Financial as an analyst and worked my way up through the ranks to become Director of Structured Finance in London. I was there for just over just under 10 years. So I work closely with a group called Endeavor Financial. They've been around for over 30 years, 20 international awards. It's run and led now by David Rhodes as managing director, who's also our executive chairman. And what Endeavor was seeing is that the streaming companies were doing bigger and bigger ticket sized deals and that the smaller side of the market wasn't getting that streaming finance creation project financing available to them. So we created Empress knowing that there was an opportunity and demand for the sub 25 million dollar financings. And that's how we launched Empress. You know, we had a strategy and we've now delivered on that and brought in three investments that are now producing revenue. But for me, it's great working with my old team at Endeavor. I have access to their financial analysts, mining engineers, geologists, investment bankers, to really be able to punch above our weight in terms of sourcing deals, vetting deals, and then being able to structure and execute.
1: So they're the wizard behind the curtain, metaphorically speaking.
4: <laughs> David would love to hear that. Yes. <laughs>
1: So, how are you being funded primarily? Because you're making very substantial investments in some of these companies, and I'm curious as to the mechanics behind that.
4: We've invested 19 and a half million dollars to date into the portfolio, which has generated roughly an asset value of 47 million. We did that through some equity raises. We also have a debt facility with current debt facility with Nabari. So, we've deployed five million of the 15 million available to us into the portfolio. But we've set these investments when we started this and we put the debt facility in place, we only had one revenue stream. We now have three coming online. We're increasing. We're forecasting. Using current metal prices, about just under $7 million U.S. in revenue this year, cumulatively over the next five years, that's about $54 million in revenue.
1: That is extremely impressive. And one of the reasons I like royalty companies, especially a company like yours, and you are a sponsor of the program, so there is certainly bias on my part. Because in a tumultuous sector, in a sector that's not seeing much love in the junior space specifically, royalty companies like yours can be the shining stars.
4: You know, there's been a lot of new entrants to the royalty space in the last two years different companies coming out. I think it's really important and I, I think it's great. Investors have a lot of different options of how, if they want to invest in the royalty and streaming model, how they can do that and, and where they do it. But there's sort of, we view it, especially on the junior side, is three types. There's the exploration generation. So early stage, typically inexpensive, but there's the exploration risk. No guarantee will turn into a line. It does a very long lead time to revenue generation. Then the second type is buying third party royalties. So an acquisition. It's pretty simple. It's already in place. It's a twenty third. 30-page document, but there's no ability to negotiate the terms and no direct relationship with the company. It's become very crowded, investment makers are putting these forward all the time, so you're part of a convening bid process, typically playing premium, and historically we've seen low returns in those types of transactions. We're the third type purely, which is the creation and origination. So working with the companies to find a flexible structure to fix the goals of all parties. We're really able to focus our capital into producing assets or new to producing assets, bringing revenue into, into Empress. And, you know, as we were talking earlier about Charles at Sierra, we have a direct relationship. So we know what's happening with the company. We have monthly reporting in the case of Sierra weekly calls. We're very hands on with our investments. We're all big shareholders in Empress as well. So we really are de-risking our investments and helping sure they move forward too. What's
1: on the horizon for 2023? What do we have to look forward to?
4: We've got a lot happening. So, Sierra is increasing its production. then what I mentioned in Mozambique, they're just ramping up production now. We're getting royalty revenue from that, but that'll get up to full capacity before the end of the year. And then we have another investment as well, which is a silver stream on Ultilay's project called Talueto in Durango, Mexico. And that stream, that project is just getting into production now. We've received a little bit of silver from them, but that'll be ramped up with the full first ball mill coming online the next month or so. And then the second ball mill by the end of the year. So those three combined do really push up our revenue and, and really get the momentum building. And that's if we did nothing else. But I have a very active pipeline opportunities we're looking at. We just got exclusivity on one. And there's a couple other ones that were in advanced stages of negotiations. So personal goal for me is to be able to bring in three new investments into Empress this year. You know, we had a concept and a strategy. We've delivered on that with the first three ones that are in revenue. And I want to continue to build that out and really grow the company this year.
1: Sounds exciting. Tell us about the share structure of the company.
4: Yes, so we roughly have 113 million shares outstanding at the moment. The market cap is about 40 million Canadian or 30 million U.S. 25% is owned by management, a management board and strategic partners, Endeavor Financial and Terra Capital. Roughly 35% is owned by institutional investors, which includes a spot asset management, uh, spot funds, uh, U.S. Global. And we did a small placement in the fall to bring in Rick Rule as a strategic investor and then roughly a third in the public float.
1: Did he reach out to you or did you build a relationship with Rick? How did how did that happen?
4: We built a range relationship over time. We met at the first time on last year, as Rick does extreme due diligence in the company and goes through that process. We met again at a different conference. He had some more questions as he sort of identified where our growth opportunity was, but also what potentially could be some risks in the company. We then went to his Boca Raton conference and got to know each other better and really built a relationship. He saw the, the value proposition in the company. I mean, we're trading at such a significant discount to our peers and with our focus of being on revenue generation and also knowing the Endeavor Financial Group of companies. He's known them for quite a while as well and almost on the opposite side of the street from each other, as Rick said before. So it's been great having him as a shareholder and going through the process with him.
1: Alexander, what would you say is the most compelling theme about Empress Royalty that you would like to share with our listeners as a potential investment consideration in addition to their portfolio?
4: Investing in Empress, you're getting direct exposure to gold and silver. We take the gold credits from Mitalor in Switzerland from, um, for example, our Peruvian one, and we're going to be getting silver credits from the one in Mexico. So you're getting leverage to gold and silver price and it's a hedge against inflation. You know, we've got much lower capital costs and operating costs compared to investing in a typical mining company. And you're also getting a globally diversified portfolio in Africa, South America. We're really able to leverage the multi-jurisdictional experience of our team and get unique access to deal flow. And And by the way that we invest in the portfolio, bringing that revenue into Empress, we're also getting great returns. Our portfolio average IRR is in excess of 30%.
1: Alexandra, it's a real pleasure to speak with you, my friend. I look forward to our next conversation. I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for joining me today.
4: Thank you so much, Ellis. Absolutely lovely to be here and chatting with you. I look forward to coming back soon.
1: I've been speaking with Alexandra Woodyer-Sharon, the president and CEO of Empress Royalty, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as EMPR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EMPYF. Find the company at empressroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up
7: form.